Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Radine's Jackie Gardina and Mitch Winnick. Welcome back to Sidebar. We are excited to have you join us again as we continue to explore our fundamental civil and constitutional rights. I want to thank all of you who have listened to the podcast and to welcome you who may be new listeners. My name is Jackie Gardina. I'm the Dean of the Colleges of Law with campuses in Ventura and Santa Barbara, and I'm here with my co-host, Mitch Winnick. Hi, Jackie. Always a delight to be back on Sidebar. I am Mitch Winnick, and I'm the Dean of Monterey College of Law. We also have programs in San Luis Obispo, Bakersfield, and Santa Rosa, California. Our guest today, Suzanne Nossel, currently serves as the Chief Executive Officer of PEN America, the leading human rights and free expression organization. She's also the author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. In her publications and speaking engagements, Suzanne is a leading voice on free expression issues. Her incredible career spans government service and leadership roles in both the corporate and nonprofit sectors. She served as the Chief Operating Officer of Human Rights Watch, as Executive Director of Amnesty International USA, as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Organizations, as Deputy to the UN Ambassador for UN Management and Reform, as Vice President of U.S. Business Development for Bertelsmann, and as Vice President for Strategy and Operations for the Wall Street Journal. Clearly, a simply extraordinary and exceptional career. And we are delighted and excited to have Suzanne with us today on Sidebar to talk about the status of free speech in America, and particularly many of the recent challenges to free speech in our schools, including K-12, universities, and even law schools. Suzanne, welcome to Sidebar. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Suzanne, many of our listeners may not be familiar with PEN America, even though the organization has been around for over 100 years. Can you briefly describe the work that it does? Sure. Uh, We have a mission to both celebrate and defend freedom of expression worldwide. We're an organization of over 7,500 writers here in the United States, and we're part of an international network of PEN centers around the world that are united in that shared mission and set of ideals. And so here in the United States, we have a literary arm of the organization where we give out literary awards. We do festivals, literary programs, writers events. We have a big program focusing on amplifying lesser heard voices in our public discourse, including the voices of those who are incarcerated, uh, young undocumented dreamers, people locked out of the literary community. And then we have a robust free expression arm of the organization where we work on a range of global and U.S. issues globally. Kind of the heart and soul of Penn is work on behalf of imperiled writers, people who are persecuted, prosecuted, jailed, sometimes tortured and killed for what they write. We advocate on their behalf. We seek to secure their freedom. We speak out for them. We help their families, help them get to safety when necessary. And we also spotlight free speech policy issues around the world, censorship in China, restrictions on press freedom and journalists' ability to carry out their work. 
And then here in the United States, we work on free speech and education, on online harassment and a whole range of free speech issues. I don't know how one organization grapples with global free expression issues, but looking at your website, and I encourage our listeners to do so, it is really amazing the reports and publications that are coming from your organization, as well as the advocacy work that you're doing. So thank you. I just wanted to check in with you on the domestic side. Before we kind of dive into the educational piece that we wanted to focus on, What do you see as some of the biggest battles that Penn is fighting today? Sure. I mean, I'll focus on areas other than free speech and education, because I know we're going to get into that probably in a minute. That probably is the most pitched battle right at the moment. But we are very engaged in the debates over free speech online. I had a recent piece in the Wall Street Journal looking at the landscape of social media, what should be done about the harms, disinformation online harassment. And we have big programs focused in both of those areas. On disinformation, we really were the first organization, I think, to call it out as a free expression issue, that even though overwhelmingly disinformation is protected under the First Amendment, you're allowed to give a false cure for COVID or talk about a conspiracy. We don't prohibit that in this country. And yet, if you have an information landscape that is flooded with disinformation, the value of free speech erodes. And I, you know, the way I talk about it is that free speech is not just the ability to say your piece, it's the ability to persuade others, to reach an audience, to make your point, to hear out uh, various points of view, and to engage in discourse. So the value of free speech is undercut in a marketplace where disinformation prevails and drowns out legitimate fact-based discourse. And online harassment, likewise, we deal with as a threat to free expression because people are driven off social media, journalists and writers in particular, for whom social media can be a professional necessity because of the level of vicious trolling, harassment that can carry over into the real world. Many of those voices are silenced. And so we've developed a very ambitious program working with writers, journalists and newsrooms to combat that problem. Suzanne, if we drive down to one of the issues that's been in the news this week, although it's been in the news for a number of months, surveys show that upwards of 70% of Americans, including Democrats and Republicans, oppose book bans. In fact, 2022 Harris Poll reviewed that just 12% of respondents favor banning school library books on what they consider divisive topics. And yet, I just looked at an article that came out this week. There are 13 states, I believe, in which there is pending legislation on banning books. What strategy can be taken or what strategy is Penn taking to combat these efforts? It is shocking. I sometimes feel like I can hardly recognize my own country. When I first came to Penn America, we used to deal with book banning, you know, I'd say with one finger. And I was actually surprised that we still did, that book banning was even a thing anymore, to learn that the organization had to confront it. But, you know, honestly, we would have a couple of incidents a year. We would usually write to a school principal or a librarian and say, it's been brought to our attention. You've removed this book from the shelves. Can you please put it back? And very often they would. And that was the end of it. And what we saw starting in 2020-2021 was book banning becoming a political tactic of choice in our culture wars. And 
it goes to this debate that is tearing at us about how to deal with becoming a more pluralistic, more diverse society, a society where there is no single racial group or identity that dominates. And the fact that the narratives that are being taught to children, the stories that children are being exposed to reflect that. And so overwhelmingly, what we see is that the book bans target stories uh, by and about uh, people of color and LGBTQ authors and characters and narratives. And it is, you know, to my mind, a retrogressive effort to exclude and suppress these narratives, you know, with the idea that if children are exposed to this, you know, they're going to uh, be introduced to the idea of being LGBTQ and it's going to plant a seed in their minds. Or if they read a story about the civil rights movement, they're going to think America's a bad country. And the thing about the United States is that there have always been debates about how we talk about our history, about how much emphasis we put on social change, how fast social change should move. But that should be the subject of debate and give and take. And it should not be the basis for legislation or heavy handed bans emanating from school boards, local governments, at public institutions. That's not the American way. We believe in the exchange of ideas that the best answer to ideas you may disagree with is to present other ideas. And what concerns me so much is, is witnessing the ways in which we've backed away from that very principle. And that even though, as you say, overwhelmingly, Americans are against book bans that nonetheless, in certain communities, certain parts of the country, people have become seized with the idea that these stories and volumes are so dangerous that they warrant a resort to banning to something that I think every American can recognize is you know something that goes against our core values and the First Amendment. We're going to take a brief break from our discussion with Suzanne Nossel, the Chief Executive Officer of PEN America, to hear from our sponsors. The future of law is protecting personal information online. It's ensuring patients' rights are protected. It's knowing how to manage your own business. At the Colleges of Law, you'll find programs built for change to address whatever the future of the legal industry might bring. The Colleges of Law, built for change, built for you. Find your future at collegesoflaw.edu. Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more, or to request a Trellis demo, reach out to Mike Suarez at mike at trellis.law or visit our website, trellis.law. Welcome back. We're talking today with Suzanne Nossel, Chief Executive Officer of PEN America. I just want to delve a little bit deeper. This is just something that 
I feel so strongly about, and it's hard for me to sit on my hands during this conversation, but I'm working at it. One thing that has surprised me about what's going on is the lack of an outcry, the lack of an outcry from from the 70% who support access to books and ideas and that free exchange, and the small minority who are, are, are kind of leading this charge. And it's a charge that isn't just at a local level or an individual state, but is really a national conversation. And you wrote a really interesting piece in Time Magazine about the the so-called parents' rights movement and the efforts to influence the K through 12 education and what books and curriculum are available. So I'm trying to understand this national movement's goals. Do you have a sense of what it is they hope to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, one really interesting point that I came across in writing that piece was that many of the people who are behind this national movement, you know, this is not just spontaneous. This is not just kind of concerned parents delving into their kid's backpack, pulling out a book, finding something sexually explicit, saying, ooh, I'm not sure if my son or daughter is ready for this. Uh, You know, I want to talk to the teacher. That's not what this is. What we see and have documented in our reports is that there are lists, in some cases, of hundreds of books that are being passed around and banned wholesale by school systems or put into proposed legislation as the basis for a book ban. People aren't even reading these books. And so that doesn't just happen spontaneously. It is a movement. And when I came to look into what was behind it, what I found out was that this parents' rights movement goes back decades. And years ago, it focused on trying to get more religion into schools. And when that was rejected by the courts, they turned to homeschooling and a kind of a whole movement behind the idea that parents ought to be free to educate their children as they choose at home and that uh, states should become more relaxed in terms of the rules for that. And I think a few years ago, what they saw was an opening to move back into the public schools and to try to control what is happening in public schools and libraries. And I think part of the reason for that opening was this very pitched cultural moment of division over issues of race and gender and identity and inclusion that we've seen in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and then the uh, battle over critical race theory. People being mobilized around the idea that this society is changing too fast and these other people are gaining too much power and control and you have to fight back. So that's one rallying cry. And what that sort of converged with was a lot of frustration over the pandemic and the way that our school systems handled the pandemic, the fact that kids were out of school for so long that they experienced learning loss. There was a a ferocious backlash against schools and teachers. And this kind of catalyzed and kindled a newfangled version of this parent's rights movement where it's not about, you know, give me the freedom to educate my kids at home if that's what I choose to do, but it's rather I want to dictate what can and cannot be read in a public school 
classroom and I'm going to gather together with other people. And there are organizations like No Left Turn in Education or Moms for Liberty that provide people with training, with information. So just one follow up on that, which is that lack of an outcry by the public when these bans are coming about. And I'm wondering if we could articulate for listeners why it matters to me in California what a Utah school district does or whether or not African-American AP studies is available in the state of Florida. Why should I be concerned about that? Look, I think there is outcry, and certainly we are engaged uh, day in and day out in pushing back, and we're talking to the press and the media and receiving incoming queries, hearing from parents, teachers, administrators who want help in waging these battles. So I do think there is an outcry that a lot of Americans, when I go to speak to groups, they are up in arms about what is happening around book banning. You know, it is happening in particular states and particular communities. There's some isolated incidences in places like California and New York, but for the most part, it's politically different territory. I do think to your point that we all have a stake in this, that if book banning becomes normalized, that today certain books are being banned tomorrow, when different people are in power, they may turn their sights on, uh, you know, a whole different set of themes and, and narratives. And so I think when conservatives legitimize book banning, the tables may be turned eventually on them and religious books or other books that they value may be targeted by bans. I also think what we see is this copycat trend where legislation gets proposed in one place. And because on the conservative side, honestly, they have very well-organized, well-oiled networks where they can propagate legislation and they're quite disciplined. So people will take a bill that's been introduced in one state and essentially replicated, oftentimes close to verbatim, could be in a dozen others. I think Florida is particularly consequential. There's a governor there who has potentially national political aspirations. So I think it's important to look at what he's doing from a free speech perspective and how that might play out on the national stage. going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. The hybrid online JD program at Monterey College of Law offers the flexibility to attend classes remotely. Two factors for me when choosing a law school were that it needed to be accredited and offer an online option. The hybrid program allows me to attend classes remotely, which really helps fit my professional and personal schedule. The program is structured and rigorous and taught by professors currently practicing in the legal field. To learn more or to apply for their next term, visit MontereyLaw.edu. Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF help streamline your workday? The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertis is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. ProCertis is reshaping online learning. Come check us out at www.procertis.com. 
Welcome back. We are speaking with Suzanne Nassel, the CEO of PEN America, about free expression in America today. So Suzanne, in addition to book burning, which is a fairly specific activity, PEN America tracks what you call educational gag orders, which is an even broader issue. You talked briefly about some of the themes that some of these groups are going after. But tell us a little more about the, this issue of education gag orders, because that has a much broader implication, I would argue, than even the banning of books, which like you and Jackie, I'm horrified at that idea. But talk to us a little about educational gag orders. You're right. In terms of the scope of whose expression is affected, that these gag orders are much more far reaching. So we have documented in our last report, more than 54 educational gag orders that have been introduced, uh, more than a dozen of them passed into law. These are pieces of legislation at the state level that ring fence certain subject areas and put them off limits for discussion and instruction in higher ed and in some cases in secondary school as well. And the genesis of this really is about a backlash against the 1619 project put forward by the New York Times, this very searching examination of American history from the perspective of the origins of slavery and elevating the importance of slavery as a force that determined the direction of the country sort of throughout its history. And look, that project is a particular perspective. Some historians have criticized it and pointed out flaws and evidentiary problems in the 1619 project. It's a perfectly legitimate subject for debate. But as that got turned into a curriculum and people began to feel it was gaining currency in terms of a set of ideas being introduced in schools and in higher education, it elicited this ferocious backlash in the form of legislation banning, in some cases it's phrased as divisive concepts. So you're not allowed to teach or discuss divisive concepts in higher ed or secondary schools, or you're not, sometimes uh, the laws specifically target critical race theory and say that that is off limits. Sometimes they target all of diversity and inclusion training. And we're seeing new bills being introduced, new model legislation just coming out this week is that would essentially ban universities from having a department or office devoted to diversity and inclusion. And look, I think we all recognize that these are fraught and sensitive debates, that there may be some trainings or educational materials that are not well thought out, that may be tendentious, that may be out of date, that may trigger counterproductive dialogues. Like there are imperfections in how we're grappling with these issues, but to resort to legislative bans as your solution to say that government intervention on a a viewpoint-specific basis to prohibit particular concepts from being taught, that is extreme. And here in America, that cannot be the answer to even a very vociferous debate over what should and shouldn't be discussed in the classroom. You know, we started this conversation out talking about that K-12 through and the parents' right movement and how the book bans and educational gag orders are being described in the way of of protecting children. But when we get to higher education, it isn't 
a parental rights movement that is moving that type of legislation forward. So what is the goal behind Florida or Texas or some of the other gag laws and other issues that are being precluded from conversation in higher education institutions? Look, I think that Florida in their legislation put this out about as plainly and baldly as you can with their Stop Woke Act, which is the name of their gag order law. And what it is, is a reaction to what people see as a shift in direction in our national dialogue, in higher education, that they reject as too progressive, as perhaps too focused on people of color and marginalized identities and elevating those perspectives and as detracting from knowledge and appreciation of American history and the ways that these people grew up with and are accustomed to and believe in. And they see it as very threatening. They feel like the education that they had is gone, that the classroom has become overly orthodox in that if you don't spout liberal or progressive ideas, you may be shut down or you may feel you can't speak, you can't have a voice on, say, topics like abortion or affirmative action, because the composition, both in terms of faculty and student bodies at most U.S. universities is overwhelmingly liberal. So it's this sense that the academy has run away in a liberal and progressive direction and that they want to pull back hard and rein it in. Of course, what we say is if, if your concern is orthodoxy and the shutting down of ideas and that certain perspectives are being excluded, surely the answer can't be legislation that does just that. There's some legitimacy to the the idea that the campuses are very dominated by liberal perspectives. We have talked to plenty of conservative students who can have a hard time and feel isolated, uh, stigmatized, like their views are not wanted. And, you know, that is a real and serious problem. And it's a problem we've been working on at PEN America for years. That's kind of where we began is with a campus free speech program to address largely threats and encroachments on free speech emanating from the left. And we still do that work. We're speaking out all the time. The latest is Hamlin University, where a professor was had her contract not renewed because she showed a, a depiction of the Muslim prophet Muhammad. And certain students objected and said this was offensive to Islam. And she was out of a job. And, you know, we've been a leading voice rejecting that and calling them out for it. So that remains important, but the answer is not these restrictive viewpoint-based laws. Then we spent a lot of time talking about the effects of state laws, and in some cases, school district policies that have had the most impact on the parental rights movement. But let me shift to a, a different plane and ask what you think we should be doing or focused on when we appear to have a U.S. Supreme Court that is certainly supporting this different view of free speech being one that free speech is to not only limit certain types of speech, but now require other types of speech. And someone even argue that they're endorsing this viewpoint with their lean towards the right and religious conservatism. What can we do about that or what should we be watching or saying about that? 
I mean, it's a very good question. The court this term will hear some really important free speech cases. You know, there, there are several cases dealing with social media and the limits of free speech. You know, there's a, a there are laws in Florida and in Texas that have been passed that essentially would require social media companies to refrain from viewpoint-based discrimination in how they moderate content. And so if they were found to be pulling down hate speech that was of a particular viewpoint, say white supremacist hateful speech, you know, that might run afoul of these laws. And the appellate courts are split on in relation to these laws, that whereas the Fifth Circuit has upheld the Texas law. The Eleventh Circuit has struck down the Florida law. Both of the laws for now have been stayed by the Supreme Court, so neither of them is actually in effect. But this court is very likely to adjudicate that case. And I think it's kind of anybody's guess where exactly they're going to come out. I mean, it is the issues are really complicated in terms of how to come up with, and I talk about this in my Wall Street Journal piece, come up with the right rules. When it comes to social media, there's a lot we don't understand about how different changes to these platforms would actually affect both the harms of speech online, like disinformation and trolling, as well as free speech. And so how they balance their interpretation of the First Amendment, whether they respect the, you know, what the companies, these social media platforms are arguing are their own corporate First Amendment rights, which is a concept that members of this court have embraced in the past, the idea of these corporate rights. It's not clear whether they will stick to that line here. Susan, I'm going to try to go up an even higher level than the Supreme Court. Given that PEN America has been around for 100 years, this is not a new battle. And I think perhaps the most well-known historical example is Nazi Germany and the book burning that occurred during that era. But we have examples within the United States. I can think of the McCarthy era or subversives in the civil rights movement within higher education and elsewhere. So what are the things that tie these together? What What is it that these efforts have in common? It's always sort of heartening at Pan America to look back at the organization's history. And we have done some of that for our centenary, to look at these battles that have been waged against the book banners and those who menaced writers in Nazi Germany, the McCarthy era, as you mentioned, like the the culture wars of the 1980s. I think the common thread is that governments and people in authority are always threatened by dissent and criticism and those who disagree with them. And if they have the power to suppress, muzzle, and silence those critics, they will use it. And that's, I think, kind of the genius in the First Amendment is that it really limits that power, but also allows a lot of controversial speech, in some cases nefarious speech, hurtful speech to be articulated. And so it it then begs the question, people are perpetually asking, well, shouldn't we do something about this, tamp down on this, whether you're objecting to white supremacist speech, or you're objecting to critical race theory, there's this impulse to lurch toward an expansion of government power to clamp down on this speech. But you know, what we have seen time and time and again is when governments have that power, they use it in incredibly self-serving ways to go after their own antagonists, to preserve their 
prerogatives to prolong their place in power. And so we push back against that. And I think that that's the really important principle that people lose sight of. It's like in the in the moment, it seems like a great idea to ban critical race theory because you disagree with it so strongly. But what you're actually doing is handing over to the legislature the power to dictate what ideas can and can't be taught, which is just, I think, an overwhelming leeway and discretion that they, they don't deserve and that's not well placed in their hands. Now, let me go to an area we like to bring towards the end of each of our programs. What is the call to action to the rest of us? What should we be doing? What should Jackie and I be doing as law professors, as law deans? What what should the individual activists in the community dealing with the school board in their community be doing? We all must have a role to play, I would assume. It's important to be part of organized efforts to join an organization like PEN America. You know, as we talked about a little while ago, this is not a fight that's being waged by individuals spontaneously. It has to be organized. So we really need that support. I think in your role as educators and law deans, it's extremely important to ensure that your students don't walk out of their education without a deep understanding of free speech and the First Amendment and also how it meshes with racial justice, gender justice. Sometimes they see free speech as inimical to those principles and ideals. They think that restrictions on speech are necessary to protect people, to give the people a sense of belonging if they might otherwise feel marginalized. And so we've done a lot of work at PEN America to explain how the imperative for campuses to become more equal and inclusive can and must be reconciled with robust protections for free speech and academic freedom, that these things are not pitted against each other. Good place to end today's conversation, but hopefully we'll be able to have you back to talk about so much more. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, Suzanne. It's been a pleasure. Jackie, this has been an excellent program that's on a topic area of great concern to me. My mother was a librarian, actually started the first library in the small town in Texas where I grew up. I can't even imagine what she would think about banning books, burning books here in 2023. I can understand why PEN America is shocked that this now becomes a new agenda for them. Although we talk about the Constitution and the Supreme Court, I personally think these are battles we're going to win locally and that we should each take up within our local community. Yeah, and that's been a real theme that's kind of come through many of our episodes is that idea of activating your voice at the local level, showing up to school board meetings, showing up to other places where where these issues are are being discussed and and being not a silent majority, but actually an active participant in the discussion. I think for me, what really concerns me, and we're recording this in the same week that we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr.'s amazing work on behalf of our country at the beginning of the week. And at the end of the week, we hear that Governor Ron DeSantis has banned the teaching of African-American history as an AP course in Florida because he didn't believe it had educational value. For me, these things cannot be separated 
from a larger conversation of the role that education has in promoting democratic values. And going right back to what Suzanne was saying about the United States transitioning to a pluralistic democracy and much of the efforts around book bans and curriculum are about marginalizing groups of individuals and their identities in the classroom and in the library. And I do not think that we can see January 6th as an attack on our democracy and not think these efforts are a similar yet less violent attack on our democracy. Couldn't agree with you more. And let me take one other tact on this conversation, which is it's so easy to demonize the voices on the other side and say that they have some type of illicit or illegal intent in their efforts to change education at the state level, at the school district level. What, what I would say is you, you cannot have it both ways. We need to listen to those voices as repugnant or different than they may be to us personally. You can't say we want to shut them down and yet say we want to have free speech. The answer to free speech is more speech, not less speech. So as difficult and challenging as it is to, to address these issues, I come back to the fact that the burden is still on each of us. We need to speak up. We need to take advantage of that constitutional right of free speech. We need to show up at the school board meetings. We need to vote for candidates in the local and state elections that support the ideas of free speech and equity and inclusion. That's our fundamental right in the United States, and it needs to be protected by each and every one of us. Agree. And I'll just end with one last thought, which is something that we're losing is the free exchange of ideas requires civility and requires the ability to listen, as you pointed out, and to engage in a civil dialogue. And the violence in the in the political rhetoric right now is making that difficult. So I think we also have to role model what it means to engage in a civil dialogue with people we may disagree with and ideas we may disagree with. I fully agree. So thank you for joining another episode of Sidebar. Mitch and I would love to hear reactions to the show and what's on your mind. You can reach us through our website, sidebarmedia.org, and on most social media sites, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. I appreciate you joining us again this week. Thank you also to David Eakin, our illustrious producer, and also the creator and performer of all the original music on our program today. Thank you to Gogo Zoger, who manages our social media efforts as well. For more information about Jackie Mitch and Sidebar, go to sidebarmedia.org. Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law are part of a larger organization called California Accredited Law Schools. All of our schools are dedicated to providing access and opportunity to a legal education to marginalized communities. For more information about the California Accredited Law Schools, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.